We're continuing uh, through this story of Esther. A warm welcome if you're here for the first time. Uh, One of the things we try and do at Christchurch is preach through, work through books of the Bible. Uh, That means that that the Bible, the, the core foundation of Christianity, is setting the agenda rather than any one person or minister in the church. And so for the last few weeks... We've been looking at this Old Testament book of Esther. Uh, if you'd like to turn to it, it's, well, it's hard to find. So look in the index at the front of your Bible, probably is the easiest way of doing that. It's before books like Job and Psalms. And we're up to Esther chapter 8. And I hope this chapter will speak to us whether we're totally new to all things Christian. If this is the first time you've ever been at church, a particular warm welcome, uh, it'll perhaps seem a distant story, almost Arabian Nights or something, but whether you're totally new or here for uh, the hundredth time, uh, God's word always has fresh, good food for us. So let me read from Esther 8. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit himself. Esther 8. Uh, Perhaps, sorry, perhaps I should set the scene, which is we are in Persia. Um, The Jewish people, God's people have been threatened with slaughter. Uh, And the Jewish queen who's married to the Persian emperor, she's called Esther, she has begged for her life and the life of her people. And the king has said, yes, your life is is spared, Esther. You can live. And he has killed the enemy of the Jewish people. He's been executed, this guy Haman. But a problem still remains, as we'll see. And God's people at the moment are still under this threat of death. So on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. He's the, the evil guy, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he'd taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot he devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, which he wrote, destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. 
Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fears, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Uh, the future is entirely out of our hands, isn't it? Uh, some of us are, are happy with that. We live and we like the excitement. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? But for many of us, the fact that we don't know what's round the corner, what next week, next month, next year will bring, is a source of real anxiety. And that's been the same all the way through history. We, we, we feel the need to control the future somehow. Perhaps we control it by discovering it. Human history is littered with fortune tellers and mystics and wise men and sages, ancient societies uh, with all sorts of complicated ways of discovering the future. It might be the Romans looking in the entrails of animals they've disemboweled. It might be the ancient Babylonians looking at the stars. But always humanity has had this desire to know the future. Because, of course, if you know something, it's, it's less scary. And we look back on them and we laugh and look at their primitive methods. And yet still horoscopes are read avidly to this day in British newspapers. Uh, still, we, we flock to have our, our, our genes mapped, our DNA coded to just give us some sort of glimpse of what the future might hold. Am I the sort of person who's going to get this disease? Am I the kind of person who's going to have a long or short life expectancy? What can I glimpse of the future? It's not just discovering it, it's also influencing it. Again, ancient societies littered with magical pendants you hung around your neck, amulets on your arm to ward off uh, evil. Magical signs carved over doorways to keep the spirits away. A desire to control. And now we wear... Smartwatches, monitoring our heart rates, our sleep cycles, our, our BMI, our blood pressure. Goodness knows what else. We, we want somehow to be able to control what's going on. Really, we have this deep down desire to, to connect with 
whatever it is that is directing the universe, be it a god or fate or, or even just the material workings of a physical universe, the atoms, the molecules, the um, diseases. We want to know, we want to control, we want to connect, and we worry. Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, again here, and just putting your head around the door, wondering what's going along, dragged along by a friend after the University Events Week. What if you resonate with any of what I've just said, this desire to control, to avoid the anxiety, the fear? Perhaps you know life is, in fact, wildly beyond your control. And you'll do anything to grasp back some power. Perhaps you're a Christian and you, and you wonder, actually, well, I know what I'm meant to be like. I've read the verses, rejoice always. I've read the commands, do not be anxious, and they just make me more anxious. I wonder spiritually, will I make it? I hear about heaven, we sing about heaven, but I'm not there yet. And I worry that the future might hold some sort of monster that stops me getting there. Or I look at myself and wonder, will I get there? Knowing the darkness, the monster within. Uh, Esther 8, I think, teaches us to throw away our magical pendants, our amulets, our, our rabbit's foot feet. John, do you know in, in, in days gone by, people used to carry rabbit's feet as a sign of good luck. Disconnected from the rabbit. <laughs> it wasn't good luck for the rabbit, but it was meant to be good luck for us. I've no idea why. But Esther 8 says you can throw away your rabbit's foot. Uh, let's set the scene. In the first couple of verses, uh, we've seen Haman is defeated. Here's the, 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 the baddie, the pantomime villain. He's been hanged on his own stake. He set the stake up to hang the goody, Mordecai. But in the previous chapters, we've seen he's been literally hanged on his own gallows. And Mordecai, Haman's enemy, Mordecai, the righteous Jew, is raised right up. Verse 2, the king gives his signet ring. That's the sign of his power he gives it into Mordecai's hands okay this is Rishi Sunak giving the the nuclear codes to Mordecai Uh, or King Charles giving him the seal that he can stamp the official documents with and there's a huge reversal going on Mordecai was was cast low he was under threat of death and now he swapped places with Haman his great enemy and he's as high as he could be at the right hand of the king and it would seem that the story of Esther ought to be over if you've tracked with us these last few weeks that the danger is adverted Ahasuerus has spared Esther's life she's been raised up the enemy is gone and yet we know that's not the case we're not yet at the end of the book I'm afraid for those of you who are hoping we might be time to move on Uh, Esther is safe but her people aren't Ahasuerus has not yet got rid of this decree of death that hangs over all the Jewish people in the empire. This decree that went out in the king's name, King Ahasuerus' name, but written by Mordecai. Sorry, written by Haman. That still stands. And so we're going to see two things this morning. Two reasons why the Jews could still rejoice. Or if you noted, by the end of the passage, they are full of light and joy and happiness. Two reasons why they were able to rejoice even while the decree of death still stood. And therefore, two reasons why we, as those who are anxious about the future, those who are not in control of the future, we now today can rejoice, find light and happiness and celebration, even without fully knowing 
what the future holds. The first is this. It's in verses three to eight. It's the passionate prayers of the Savior, the passionate prayers of the Savior. There's Esther. Uh, She falls at the king's feet and begins pleading with him again. And the king is willing to listen. So he holds out the gold scepter that says, yes, you can speak to me. It's a very hierarchical system. So Esther gets up. And in verse five, she, she argues her case. If it please the king, if I found favor in his sight, if it seems right before the king, if I am pleasing in his eyes, four reasons. Two of them are about Esther. If I found favor. In other words, if I've done the kind of things that make you happy. And then again, if I am pleasing in his eyes, if you look at me, husband and king, lord and master, if you look at me and rejoice, if I am pleasing to you, if you delight in me, in other words, who I am and what I've done. And also, if the matter itself pleases you and seems right to you, if it seems a good thing to do and the kind of thing that will give you joy. So some of the reasons are about Esther, some about the king. If these things are true, then, well, what's the request? End of verse five. Will you write to revoke the letters devised by Haman, which he wrote to destroy the Jews? Send out another letter that says that first one was cancelled. Esther is safe, but she's not happy until her people are safe. And you can hear the passion in her pleas. Verse six, it's there. It's, you always want to see this in your, in your mind's eye. Stories in the Bible are meant to sort of, uh, capture our imagination, I guess. And, and Esther does that, I think, better than any story. My preaching might ruin it, but the story itself it is rich in, in imagery. For some people, the letters of Paul, which are very kind of didactic and clear and logical arguments, we, we can put together the arguments. For some people, those kind of ring home. But for many of us, it's stories that kind of Grab our attention. Here she is in verse six. How can I bear to see the calamity that's about to fall before my people? You can imagine her there weeping, pouring out her heart. How can I bear again to see the destruction of my kindred? I, I cannot bear to see my people destroyed. I know I am safe, but that is not enough. For me to live and them to die is, is ruin to me, my husband, my king, my lord. A king is a pretty shallow character we've discovered in the book. Not necessarily totally wicked, certainly not totally righteous, but just empty. He doesn't seem to have cared particularly about the Jews. He says, I've already spared the Jews or I've killed Haman because he attacked the Jews. But that's not why he did it. He did it in the last chapter we saw just because he was annoyed that Esther was being attacked. He doesn't seem to have any particular love for the Jewish people. And that seems to be his argument in verse 7. Look, I... Come on, Esther, I've, I've, I've got rid of Haman, the bad guy. I've given you all his, his household. Why are you still so bothered about a bunch of, what do you call them, Jew, Jews? Why do you care? King Ahasuerus, we've seen through the book, only really cares about himself, his wealth, his glory, his image, what other people think of him. He can't quite understand why someone would risk their life for the sake of others. And so I wonder if it's almost a sense of frustration, verse 8. But whatever, go right, go right. If you want, you've got the ring. You can write a law in my name, you and your cousin Mordecai. Off you go. But there's a problem. We'll come back to this later. Just that very last bit of verse eight. 
an edict. Children, that's just like a law or a rule or a letter. Something written in the king's name can't be revoked, can't be taken back, in other words. That's what it means to revoke something, children. You can't just say, that's cancelled. That's a problem because there's already a law that's gone out that said all the Jews can be butchered on this particular day in the 12th month. What of that will return? But as we pause here in the story, what is it that is going to lead to the, the, the joy, the gladness, the happiness, the feasting of God's people at the end of this chapter? At this stage, it is the passionate pleas of Esther, isn't it? It is her desire for the salvation of her people that is going to lead to their rescue. She is their representative, their, their advocate. We don't tend to use the word advocate very much. It comes up in scripture quite a lot. I think more an American word, perhaps. Um, those of you who are Simpsons fans, um, at least in the early days, I understand he's been sort of cancelled recently because the actor died. But anyway, there was a lawyer on the Simpsons, uh, Lionel Hutz, and he was a total shyster. Okay, not all lawyers are shysters, I know. Um, but, you know, they're not the most respected profession at times, are they? Um, he's an ambulance chair. I say that my wife's a lawyer, my mother-in-law's a lawyer, my father-in-law's a lawyer, my dad's a lawyer. That's probably where that's coming from. Uh, just a deep sense of insecurity. Um, anyway, um, Lionel Hutz, is, he's, a, he's an ambulance-chasing lawyer. You know, um, I'll, solve your, I'll, I'll argue your case in 30 minutes. Not guilty. If you don't get it in 30 minutes, you get free pizza. That's the kind of level. Um, he's named after a guy apparently called Sir Lionel Lukhu. Um, who won 245 consecutive defence cases in murder trials, um, which apparently is a world record. <laughs> to, imagine that. Okay, you're, you're, on, you're on trial in court. You're not sure who's going to represent to you, who's going to be your advocate. In comes Sir Lionel Lucky, world record-holding defence lawyer. 245 straight wins. I'd fill you with confidence, wouldn't it? Well, here is the queen married to the king, the most powerful man in all the known world, arguing the case for the Jewish people and arguing with passion, tying her happiness to theirs. And as I guess some of you have already begun to think through Esther, as we've seen throughout the book, we are getting a little view of the far greater saviour, Jesus Christ. Children, if I was to ask you, what is Jesus doing now? Not what did Jesus do for you 2,000 years ago, but what is he doing now? I wonder what you'd say. There's more than one right answer, to be fair. But let me tell you about one thing he's doing for you now. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Let me read it to you. Consequently, because of all that Jesus has done and... The writer means dying for us, rising, paying for all our sin. He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to intercede for them, to make intercession for them. What that means, children, is Jesus lives now to pray for his people. He's died for them. He's risen. He's not just gone to heaven and put his feet up on the sofa. He's not sat on the, the throne and kind of high-fived the Holy Spirit as he comes down. It's your go now. I, I'm tapping out. He is at work now just as much as he ever was on earth, praying for his people. And, and again, through Esther, we get this window into the heavenly courtroom. As we look at the palace, the mighty tower of King Ahasuerus, we see into the palace of heaven. 
the mighty fortress of God, and see again this beloved ruler pleading for his people. Pleading in in the same way as Esther did. Because of your love for me, Father, spare this people. If I am pleasing in your sight, if both who I am to you and what I've done is pleasing to you, spare them. The basis, the basis of God's love for his people is found in his love for Christ. It is the prayers of Christ that secure your future. If you love me, says Jesus, rescue them. You've rescued me from the cross, from the grave, from burial. Now rescue them. It's not enough that you've raised me up, Father. Raise them up too. John 17, Father, I desire, says Jesus, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. He means heaven. That's where I want them to be. Jesus is a far more passionate pleader than Esther. Any compassion you see in Esther is magnified in Jesus. His appeal is based on the Father's love for him and his love for us. I cannot be without them. If you've come to Christ, that is how Jesus feels about you. Heaven would not be heaven, Father, he says, without Phil, without Sarah, without Emma. For my sake, bring them here. Whatever happens on their journey, get them here, Father. And we know if there's one person in all of existence that the Father loves, it's his own son. The son with whom I'm well pleased, he says. Both who Jesus is and what he has done is unbelievably pleasing to God the Father. Your salvation is secured by passionate prayer. But thank God, not your passionate prayer, because you are not passionate enough in your prayers, are you? Say that with total confidence. I don't know who would be the most passionate prayer in the church. Prayer. And who's the least? That's not a useful question to ask anyway. (laughs) But even if we could add all our prayers together, they're not enough to save us. We are saved by the intercession, the pleading of Jesus, not by our own pleading, our own prayers. And so we don't have to control everything because everything is in Jesus' hands. We can throw away the rabbit's foot, get rid of the amulet, the wind chime. Stop worrying about all the things that might harm us on the way. Because Jesus will ask God for everything we need. And if he doesn't want you to have it, you won't. Your life will be exactly as long to the minute and the second as Jesus wants it to be. And a second longer and not a second shorter. Everything that God gives you in response to Jesus' prayer is necessary. And nothing that he holds back from you is needed. Everything he gives you is necessary, even mysteriously. And I say this with some trepidation, but even the the suffering and the hard times we go through. In the kindness and goodness of God, everything he gives is necessary. And nothing that he withholds is needed. 
we say, look, I've prayed and you've not given me this and I need it. I cannot go on without it. And ultimately, God says, Jesus has asked me for what is needed. He knows better than you. You say, you've put this in my life and it is, it is too much for me to bear. And God says, Jesus has asked. Nothing comes to you outside of Christ. Nothing comes to you outside of God's control. Nothing comes to you other than through the prayers of Jesus. His death won for you everything you need to get home. And his prayers give those gifts to you along the journey. Your life is safe in his hands. And that can be scary, can't it? We, don't, we like to be in control. Those of us, and I include myself among them, uh, those of us who, who struggle with sort of anxiety. And one of the reasons is we want to be in control. And it's scary to say, okay, I, I have no control here. It is all in your hands. I'm going to put it all in your hands. We need to know the one to whom we're entrusting everything is good. And that's why the second part of our passage, the final part of our passage, is such good news. I said at the beginning, two reasons we can throw away that rabbit's foot. First is the passionate prayers of the Saviour. The second is the word of good news to the world. The word of good news to the world. This is verses 9 through to the end of our story. Uh, Remember the problem that the decree can't be revoked. That first law that went out can't just be cancelled. So Mordecai comes up with a plan. Mordecai and Esther together, they come with a problem. Uh, they come across a problem and come up with a solution. They write a, a counter decree. They write a mirror letter, children. A second letter. The letter can't cancel the first because no law can be cancelled. And so what they do is match it. Back at the end of chapter three. Haman wrote the first letter. Just look at chapter 8, okay, chapter 8 and verse 9 onwards. And I'm going to read from chapter 3 and hear the parallels, okay? So you're looking at chapter 9, 8, sorry, <laughs> uh, verse 9 onwards. And I'm going to read from chapter 3. Then the king's scribes were summoned. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces, to all the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews. A copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by orders of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Even as you just scan the second decree written by Mordecai and Haman, you see it matches the first. It goes to all the provinces, 127 provinces, as did Haman's. It's written in every language and script, as was Haman's. It's written in the name of King Ahasuerus, as was Haman's. It is sealed with his ring, as was Haman's. It's sent out by these couriers, as was Haman's. One decree of death, and the second decree matches it almost exactly. And what's the content of this second decree? But it can't just be, scrap that first idea. 
So instead, the decree says you're allowed to defend yourself. That's really important. Verse 11. In every city, the Jews are allowed to gather and defend their lives. You must hear the defend their lives before you see the destroy, kill and annihilate. This is not a law that says, hey, Jews, you're top dogs now. God's people, you're top dogs now. You can go and butcher anyone you like. It's jihad time. You don't like them, you go kill them. Wives, kids, anyone you like. No, it is authorizing their defense against anyone who attacks them. Again, the wording is exactly the same as Haman's. Destroy, kill, annihilate. Even the families of those who attack. Now, that shocks us. Um, I'm just going to have to ask you to, to hold back till next week when we'll think more about the actual battle, when we see the battle happens. But the reason for the severity of the decree, the second one, is that it has to match the first So when it arrives on the desk of the provincial officials and they look at these two decrees that seemingly conflict, if the second one was kind of weaker, then they might prioritise the the first. And so it's matched almost word to word in order that it would scare off people from attacking. It's proclaimed in every language so that those who might be thinking, huh, I quite like that first decree. There's some Jews who live around the corner. I'd quite like to nick their field, their house. I've never got on with them. I don't mind doing some butchering. They hear the severity of the second decree and think, no. I understand there are questions about warfare and all the rest of it. I promise we'll deal with them next week. What's the result? Totally the opposite of the previous one. It's a total reversal. Last time that decree of death was sent out across the empire and Mordecai put on sackcloth. What do we see in verse 15? Mordecai goes out in royal robes. At last time, Mordecai was outside the king's gate. He couldn't come near the palace because he was in sort of mourning death clothes. This time he's in the king's presence and able to go out from the king's presence. Crowned indeed. Last time the city of Susa mourned. Now the city rejoices. Look at verse 16, chapter 8, verse 16. Last time we read this. The Jews mourned, fasted, wept, and lamented. Four things. Mourn, fast, weep, lament. Now, four new things. Now the Jews have light, gladness, joy, and honor. They're full of joy. Last time they fasted. This time they're feasting, having a party holiday. And even, verse 17, many other people Join them, declare themselves Jews, join the people of God. It is a total reversal of the first decree. Now God's people know they're safe, so much so they're able to rejoice, even though the first decree hasn't gone away, and even though the day hasn't yet arrived, the day of judgment and death hasn't yet arrived. Salvation, in a sense, hasn't arrived, but they're still confident. Why? Well, because of the second decree. And again, where are we today? There are two decrees that have gone from the throne of heaven, two words of God. There is the first word that says the wages of sin is death. If you're new to Christianity, uh, you need to be straight with you this morning. The Bible says none of us have lived as we ought to have done. God says none of us have lived as we ought to have done. And he is holy and good and we are not. And therefore the punishment for our ignoring of him is death. We face death. That is the first word that's got out from heaven. 
And that word cannot be revoked. God has said, right back at the beginning of the Bible, the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. If you sin or rebel against me, you will die. die is, death is the punishment for sin. And God cannot go back on his word. He, he's not somebody who changes his mind or says, oh, go on there. You know, because it's tied to his character. He is doing right when he judges sin. It's not the nasty side of God. It is the good side of God that he judges sin. His justice wouldn't allow him to go back on that. But so much as he loved us that he sent out another word, the word of the gospel, the word of grace, the word of his son, Jesus, who is of one nature with God, came and put himself under that decree of death. Said to God, treat me like them, as we've seen time and time in the book of Esther. I will go under the decree of death in order that they might have life. Let me change places with my people. Again, those of you for whom this is new, this is the heart of the Christian message. It isn't try harder, be better, be holier, pray more, but rather you have failed in all those ways, but God has come down and taken that punishment in your place. Live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died. And so he can freely offer you salvation, eternal life, forgiveness, God could not have just said, let's just let them off. And so he sent out a second decree. Sin needed paying for. And every sin ever committed will be punished. You ever thought about that, John? Do you realize that? Every single sin you've ever committed will be punished by God. He will punish them. He cannot not. That would be to go against his nature. Some people have turned God into a kind of teddy bear in the sky. He is full of grace and love, but he's holy and majestic too. He will punish every sin you commit. The choice is whether it's in you or in Christ. He has said, come to Christ and all your sin will be punished there instead. The second decree, which is such good news and has gone out to all nations, all peoples. And so firstly, if you're, if you're at the moment someone who's not come, put their trust in Jesus then you need to hear that decree that went out to all provinces and now goes out to all nations Jesus says to his disciples go to all nations every tribe and tongue Christianity is not for the west or the middle east where it began it's not for English speakers or French speakers or Spanish speakers it is for all tribes tongues and nations whatever country you were born in whatever color and shade of your skin Whatever language you speak, Jesus says, come, come and find free forgiveness. It is the only place of safety. Come and take me as your saviour and as your Lord. His desire is for you to rescue humanity. And it, again, it's nothing to do with you. You don't have to save yourself. You come to him and your future is secure because all your sin, the only thing that could cause you real pain, real suffering, it's all been atoned for. It's all been paid for. It's been written off. That and that alone, your sin, your rebellion against God, is the only thing that can cut you off from eternal glory, from paradise. Disease cannot do that. Hardship cannot do that. Poverty cannot do that. Broken relationships cannot do that. Tears cannot do that. Only your sin can cut you off from God eternally. And if that has been paid for, then all those other things, painful as they are, 
They cannot separate you from the love of God or from the glory that awaits. And so your future is secure because of those passionate prayers of Christ and because of his atoning death, the word of the gospel. And so you can throw away the amulets, throw away the lucky charms. We can actually throw away the anxieties and the need to control the future. Throw away the worry, the searching, the endless mental whirrings as to what is going to happen. Throw away the fears that I might not make it because me making it rests entirely in Jesus' hands. And he has promised he will not fail. You are safe in the hands of this passionate saviour who pleads for you daily, hourly, before the throne of God. You are safe at the foot of the cross that has atoned for all your sins, the only thing that can keep you from glory. And so on the journey home, yeah, suffering, certainly. Tears, yes. But certain arrival. There's the man in whom your future rests. Throw away the rabbit's foot. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, ask that in your mercy uh, you would have us cast all our hope, hang all our hopes on Jesus. We thank you that not only did he die for us, but he also now prays for his people. And we want to commit ourselves into his hands, knowing that everything he gives is needed and nothing he withholds is necessary. Lift our eyes to him and help us to throw away any desire to control, to know uh, the future. Confident that we're safe in his hands. Bless us in his name we pray. Amen.